Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hello and welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. We're in the studio today with our producer extraordinaire, Kevin Farrell, behind the wheels of steel for us. And each week we come to you at this time with an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. Uh, we talk to writers, visual artists, musicians, photographers, as well as people who help promote the arts in their community. Today we're going to be talking about writing and the writing life and magic and all kinds of other and uh, card sharping and all kinds of other subjects with our guest today, Michael Cardos. Michael, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Now, you are the co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Mississippi State University. You uh, past guest. You've been on here a couple times with other books, you've, but you've got a brand new book out called Bluff. It's just come out. Tell yeah. us a little bit about it. Sure thing. Um, and thanks for having me back. This is my third time being here, so, which is very exciting. Um, Bluff is a novel about a woman magician named Natalie who um, gets together with a professional card sheet to try to rob a high stakes poker game out of a million and a half dollars. Um, so, so that's that's the story, and I, I I never wrote a novel before that I could summarize in one sentence. That's a good elevator speech. Yeah, that's very. <laughs> Normally, good. it's got to be a much much longer elevator ride. So, uh, this book um, it it brings in kind of a, a couple different elements of your past books. I mean, your 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 early kind of story collection was very much a um, a lot of different focus on character. You definitely delve into the backstory of of Natalie the magician, but also your more recent books that have a more suspense angle. So you kind of, in some ways, I felt like I was wedding a couple of different elements of what you've done in the past. Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable. And I was thinking too about the fact that maybe part of the suspense thing is that I think it's hard to do suspense in ten pages in a short story. You know, I mean, people do it, but I think, in a way, um, the first novel that I published was. A suspense, you know, had suspense in it and a crime in it. And uh, what I, I think what I found was that having a crime at the center of the story gave it a real anchor and it gave it some weight and it made the stakes high for the main character. And so hopefully that made the stakes high for the reader too. And so I found that that was kind of a useful thing to do. And so um, the, in the two novels since, they've also had some sort of a crime kind of at the hub of the story, even if it's, even if, you know, every page isn't devoted necessarily to the crime itself. So yeah, so Bluff, um, I think it's kind of a character study of the main character, of Natalie, this magician, but also the, I, I was pretty concerned with the pacing and there being an interesting plot there too. Yeah. Well, well tell us about kind of your interest in magic. I think We've talked in the past about your kind of time on the Jersey uh, boardwalk as a teenager working, and <laughs> magic kind of came into that. Talk about your background kind of interest in magic. Yeah, I think it started really early. I, I know that my first, the first show I ever saw in New York was The Magic Show, starring as a musical, starring Doug Henning. Oh, back right, in the, yeah. yeah. Back in the late 70s. The world of illusion. Oh, my, yeah, that's right. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, in uh, eighth grade, my English teacher was a magician. He used to do table hopping, you know, at restaurants, going table to table magic. And so he started up a magic club for three or four of us. And uh, and then I think I was pretty into it, you know, 12, 13, 14. And then in high school, you know, I happened to live near the ocean in New Jersey on the, on the Jersey Shore. And there's this uh, fishing pier that became um, a like a sort of amusement pier 
mini theme park, uh, which I ended up writing about a lot in the short story collection. But uh, my job there for a couple summers was to do magic shows. I performed eight shows a day, eight 20 minute shows a day. I can still, and this was, gosh, 30 years ago, but I, 30 more, more than 30 years ago, but I can still remember my show times. It was like 10, 10, 30, 11. Then I had to wait until one because the circus was between 11 and one. Then another one at two and then four, four, 35. So, um, so I got to do this sort of same show over and over again, uh, kind of working on, working on it and working on it. And I thought I was getting away with murder because I was making a dollar more than minimum wage. Remember, minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. And my big negotiation when I'd perf- I auditioned, I did a little magic show. And then the owner of this theme park was like, so what do you think you're worth? <laughs> and, and I had it really planned out. I was like, all right, um, this, uh, I was like, Mr. Chicklees, I, I can tell you because be, I know that minimum, I know that minimum wage is three dollars and thirty-five cents an hour, and I, I really believe I'm worth at least a dollar more than that. And he goes, sold. So four dollars <laughs> and thirty-five cents an hour was my was my rate, and I, I thought it was so amazing that I was making so much. I didn't tell any of my friends. You know, I was like. It would be way too much jealousy. So, well, you were part of it. You were the talent, right? You yeah, just I was the a, talent. Yeah, wasn't wasn't just there <laughs> putting people in 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 cars or shuffling yeah. through or making cotton candy. That's right. So I uh, so I did that, and um, and I just always liked magic and was interested in it. And then um, years later, when I mean, gosh, fifteen years later, I was a first semester graduate student teaching undergrads. Uh, beginning fiction writing. And I just happened to have a guy in my class who was, I guess he was about 20 years old. He was an undergrad who had already been traveling the world as a magician. He had won these international contests. And, you know, you always get an excuse from a student why they can't be in class, but his would be like, you know, dear, an email, dear Mike, I can't be in class because I'm going to be in Hong Kong, you know, (laughs) performing for, you know, kings and queens and royalty and 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 so he was already just traveling all over the place and and you know he would come to my office hours and show me card tricks and he really was by far and away the best close-up magician i'd ever seen and i had seen a lot by that by that point and we just we you know he seemed a little older than some of the other kids just because he had experienced a lot more and we became friends and just stayed in touch over the years and so um when i was really thinking about trying to write my magic novel, which I toyed up, toyed, I really toyed with the idea for a long time. I tried to write magic stories and I'd write a couple sentences and I put it away, a couple paragraphs and put it away. But when I thought maybe I could get some traction, um, I emailed him and I was like, I'm going to, I know the basic lingo. I know the basic understanding of moves and things, but I'm going to need a real expert. Will you help me? And he emailed back and said, I, I would love to, but there's one condition that you can't make the magic real. Because he was so sick and tired of, you know, every magician's story or movie or TV show where at some point it became this obligatory move where the magic was real. You know, like the prestige and all the things we really like. But he's like, he's like no, 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 you got you to keep it, you know, you got to keep it honest. You got to have it just be, you know, the craft. Yeah. With the craft, which is what I was interested in anyway. I was not interested in making it supernatural or real. So it's sort of, but uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that he had to say. And uh, so, yeah, so then it took a few years and. There came the novel. How about that? Uh, we're talking with Michael Cardos today. He's the co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Mississippi State University, and we're talking about his new book, Bluff, that's just come out on the Arts Hour. Um, the one thing I wanted you to just mention is, like, the 70s and 80s was just a, a massive time for magic, too. So I was wondering, being in kind of the New York mm-hmm. kind of orbit, 
I guess there was a lot of kind of were there yeah. professionals around that you yeah. were seeing and that. Well, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time for magic, especially for bigger and bigger illusions, right? Because I think that was the age of the magic TV special. So you know, David stay tuned. Copperfield. David Copperfield making yeah. you know a tiger disappear, which becomes you know it's like great inflation or you know um, an arms race. They're, the elephant disappears, the jet plane disappears, the Statue of Liberty disappears, and that one kind of freaked me out a little bit, you know, <laughs> because come on, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, these specials were on TV, but it was not yet the age of like, you know, YouTube or, you know, where, where, or so many cable channels that you could see whatever you wanted. So you, these, they were really events, at least for me, when these specials came on. Um, but that was sort of the big illusions. As far as sleight of hand, um, I was a member of my local Society of American Magicians, Chapter 181 out of Neptune, New Jersey. And I would go to my monthly meetings. And uh, that's sometimes they would have people come in from New York, you know, take the train down and uh, do some lectures and things. And so I got to meet some magicians that way. Um, yeah, so it was a pretty interesting time to be doing magic. And so in, in the book, your uh, your main character, Natalie, who's the the prodigy, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and she really kind of... In, in a lot of ways dispenses with the the illusion in that it's a lot for it's just the repetition and and just the mastery and and, and the me- just like perfecting these mechanics of these different tricks yeah natalie is a perfectionist and she is really interested in technique possibly to her own detriment you know i think she sort of forgets a little bit about performance and and you know, the the patter and that that element of it but she but she is really interested um, in using her hands to do amazing things. And in fact, the one profession that she really looks up to as even better than like the sort of perfect magician would be the classical pianist, right? Who uses these 10 fingers to do this thing that she can't even really imagine one doing. Mm-hmm. Now, were you as a teen magician, were you as dedicated as Natalie in terms of your, you know, perfection of craft for your your boardwalk show or what the other shows that you did oh not even close (laughs) i i got by on um moderate technique and decent patter and the fact that i was 15 Uh, so you know i think uh you give you you probably give a 15 year old magician some leeway you know that you wouldn't necessarily give a grown human being absolutely um so in in terms of the 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 world of the so so she's a magician we kind of open the book with kind of seeing her world and then she becomes interested in kind of the what you'd call the card sharps or the mm-hmm. card sheets and how did you bring that was that an element that was totally how did you kind of dig into the details of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few concerns in this book that I was interested in and one was the kind of ethic of it, right? But the idea that magic, you know, is ultimately fair play. The audience knows that you're going to um, try to do something to amaze them and, and fool them, essentially. Um, but they're in on it, and they want that. And then the magician does something, and the magician is fooled. And everybody sort of—it's like a contract ahead of time where um, the card sheet, it's not fair play because— the, the people at the table think that it's going to be one thing, and in fact, it's another, and they never even know it happened. So um, I thought the ethic of that was was pretty interesting to me. Um, and this is all a little bit, too, wrapped up in the idea of storytelling, um, where I was sort of aware the whole time writing this book how similar it was to, to the act of writing itself, this idea of trying to write um, 
a novel, which is fiction, and yet you try to convince people that it's real. And the, the reader, buy, they pick up the book, it says a novel on it, they know it's not real, and that you try to convince them that it's real. And if you do it well, they become convinced it's real. And it, it just seemed very similar to the idea of like performing a magic trick. Um, and it, it also, in a way, is this idea of um, of conning in that, in that the, the, the reader wants to be taken, you know, and if, if it's done right, the reader's happy that they were taken and they don't understand it. Yeah, and it seems like there there was a. I don't know if this is does this exist in you know the 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 magician characters, especially kind of her um, the guy who taught her mm-hmm. is, is very virtuous about it. And is like, how could you dare you know even mm-hmm. think about going to look at a card sheet? And the card sheets mm-hmm. are like, get over yourself, you dumb magicians. You yeah, know? yeah. In the novel, um, Natalie she she doesn't have any money, and so she try to make some extra cash. She get she goes an assignment where she's going to profile a card sheet for a magazine and her mentor just right thinks this is a terrible idea how you know why don't you profile a magician how, how why would you take a card sheet you know, it's criminal um I, th- I think it's i mean i think that i perhaps exaggerate those um differences for for for, for dramatic purposes in the novel though i do think that they're they exist um but it's uh it's kind of an interesting thing i mean they both re- referenced this man Di vernon um, D-A-I, his first name, Di Vernon, who most magicians think of as like the greatest sleight of hand magician ever. And Di Vernon, though, spent a long time chasing down card sheets and learning from them. So there is this sort of bleeding over from one to the other. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Certainly like Harry Anderson, you know, who recently passed away, was this, was he a magician? Was he a con man? Was, what was he? You know, so. and He I kind think, of vacillated, I guess, in yeah, different I mean, parts of his life. Yeah, maybe. I think when he was younger, he was, he was on the streets of New Orleans doing the shell game. Uh, but then he, after getting beaten up a few times, turned it into a magic performance and it found it wasn't all that different, except for it was a lot safer. <laughs> a different kind of con. We're back on the Arts Hour, and today our guest is Michael Cardos. He's a co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Mississippi State, and we're talking about his latest novel, Bluff. Now, uh, in the back, you so you so you talk about your uh, former student who kind of mm-hmm. was your informal advisor, but also in the back of the book, you talk about some different like classic texts mm-hmm. of of card sharping. I guess is that what those are card. Uh, I don't know if card cheating is the fair way to say it. Actually, but. those books are, for the most part, um, sleight-of-hand magic books. Oh, magic books. Yeah, okay. card tricks and, and small object magic, coins, cards, everyday objects kind of things. And some of these are just classics. So um, the one um, is probably 100 years old, uh, which had two titles, but um, The Expert at the Card Table is a hilarious book because, you know, I've been doing – I'm not a – professional magician but I'm you know an amateur and reading that book is like reading in a totally other language it's the most complicated thing in the world and I think part of it is magic books by their definition are taking you know a three-dimensional task that's really intricate and trying to describe it in two dimensions you know either either with illustrations and with words and it's pretty Mm -hmm. tricky to explain anyway Um, but then some of them T. Nelson Downs The Art of Magic um uh, is sort of this classic book of of you know sleight of hand manipulation, and they're ones that a lot of magicians kind of grew up grew up reading. And kind of teaching magic is kind of like a sideline for professional magicians, right? I mean, it's kind of another. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much if they teach everything, but they definitely can well, sell yeah. kind of the. Well, I think the idea is that on the one hand, there's this like magician's oath, right? Like a magician shouldn't tell their secrets. On the other hand, if nobody told any secrets, then magic would be dead in one generation. So there's also a a really strong, you know, sort of tradition of apprenticeship, um, not only teaching 
the next generation of of usually kids, you know, starting off how to do magic, but also writing books. Uh, and a lot of magicians over the years have written books, and many of the of the great magicians have have written them. And that's almost part of part of their career is to take um, maybe not their best trick. <laughs> <laughs> but a number of the other ones um, and, and write them down and, and notate them and put them down so that the next generation can learn from them. Right. And then I, there's always the innovation part of it. And that comes up in your book as well. Absolutely. It's like any art form. You know, it's one thing to cover someone else's trick or someone else's song or someone else's, you know, artwork. Um, and it's another to take that and push it farther and either expand on something someone's done or come up with something so revolutionary no one's done before. But like most art, it's usually a matter of expansion and combining different things and, and putting you know, putting your own stamp on it. So the the main character is Natalie, who's kind of, uh, she's only 27, mm-hmm. but she's already kind of past her, or she thinks she's past she, her prime. Yeah, she she um, was sort of an 18-year-old magic prodigy and won these contests and stuff, and then went into kind of, uh, um, she has a little bit of a self-sabotage streak. And uh, so but when the novel opens and she's 27, she's um, she feels that she's pretty down and out and in a, in a pretty serious rut. But... Um, in terms of kind of how she got started, it seems like an almost an accident. It wasn't necessarily her interest, but her mother kind of guided it towards towards it. Yeah, her mother was uh, needed some time time to herself, and so dropped her daughter off at the strip mall where this uh, magician, where this magic shop happened to exist, and paid the owner some bucks to teach her magic. And she just was very um, she had a real facility for it. And saw it. Um, I think, like a lot of kids, when they start magic, they 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 saw it as something that they could do. It was something that they could do that the people around them couldn't do, and and they could fool people, and they could. It seemed kind of amazing that they worked at this and could do this thing that they shouldn't be able to do because it seemed to defy the physical laws. Right. But for her, it I guess in some ways it extends out to kind of a a space that she can control, a space that she can feel safe or mm-hmm. whatever inside her family. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And then, and then, like many things, you know, what you're good at, you keep working at, and suddenly it became a career. And she didn't, she didn't exactly plan it that way, but it, it worked out that way. Why don't you, uh, c- could you read a little bit? You have a little yeah. bit... Uh, uh, pulled out here for us. Yeah, I can read a real brief excerpt. And this is from the middle of the novel. And I think the only thing you need to know is that um, by this point, um, Ellen and this and this professional card cheat whose name is, uh, I'm sorry, Natalie and this professional card cheat whose name is Ellen are working together um, to try to, um, they're practicing and getting ready to cheat in this big poker game and this 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 is just the end of a chapter after Ellen leaves Natalie's apartment and Ellen is alone and has a minute to kind of reflect After Ellen left, I sat on the love seat and worked late into the night on controlling the cards. I thought about all the things I used to tell myself about being a magician, things Jack had told me, things I'd read in books, how the magician creates a mystery, an unbridgeable gap between cause and effect, how with enough practice, magic could be a bomb applied to the tyranny of the everyday. I actually wrote stuff like that myself in Jack Clarion's newsletter, and I remember believing it. But at some point, or gradually over many points, I had lost the mystery, and a new tyranny had set in, gig after gig, rent check to rent check, good technique, high heels, and a bowler hat year after year. I looked down at my hands. I took such good care of them, 
filing the nails, constantly applying lotion I couldn't afford. People sometimes mistook me for younger than I was because of my face. They should have looked at my hands. The hands never lie. The veins were more visible now than they once were, the skin looser. My hands were no longer the hands of a young woman. These hands and what I did with them, they were all I had. When I considered Cardini, Slidini, Di Vernon, T. Nelson Downs, Harry Houdini, all those legends who made their indelible impact on the art of conjuring, I had to wonder who was I. Our time on this earth was so limited. At some point, we painted our last brushstroke on the great mural, and I had yet to make a single lasting mark. I wanted to do something beautiful with these hands of mine. That was Michael Cardos, our guest today on the Arts Hour, reading from his latest book, Bluff. Um, hands come up a lot in this. I mean, mm -hmm. just the, the the care of the hands, injury to hands. Yeah, I and, think yeah. If, if I had to come up with another title, it might be hands. Right. <laughs> I mean, with a pun as far as poker hands as well. Right? Uh, but I, it was interesting. Um, she talks a lot when she kind of first starts observing the card cheats mm -hmm. and, and the physicality of like just the size of people's hands and their ability to kind of manipulate based on the size of their hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Natalie, our main character, uh, is tall, and she she's uh, and she has she notes that she has large hands with long fingers, and um, that gives her certain abilities with the cards that another woman might have. Um, she can palm them better. She can control them better. And when she meets this other woman, Ellen, one of the things that amazes her so much because Ellen is so good at working the cards that Ellen is a, is petite and her hands are small, and so it almost. Uh, Natalie is just even more amazed that she can do all these things with such small hands. Amazing. Um, one uh, thing I wanted to bring out. So this book has come out. It's Is it your third book on Mysterious Press? Is it that, is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Mysterious Press is a very unique kind of special uh, sub. Is it a... So it's an imprint of a bigger thing, but it's its own yeah, kind of place. Yeah, that's as well. right. So Grove Atlantic is is the publisher, and then the Mysterious Press is the crime imprint of Grove Atlantic. And so the Mysterious Press is is edited um, by Otto Penzler, who um, is a longtime crime and mystery editor, and he he edits the the annual Best American Mysteries and a number of other anthologies and books. And he has a a bookstore as well? He is does. Okay. He has, it's the Mysterious Bookshop in New York. So, uh, so he's also a book, you know, book proprietor. Uh, he was here last year for the uh, Mississippi Book Festival, mm -hmm. and I was watching uh, the session that you were part of, and he seems like a very, he, he, he's, he's a big personality, and I was just curious about him as, as an editor and as someone who's kind of mentored you what what he's like yeah well he's a great editor and then he's a real supporter and kind of trusts the writers to do their work and then um you know when he has suggestions they tend to be sort of holistic looking at the story and 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 um but he's been such a such a delight to work with and he's a real champion of the books and uh, it was funny when the first novel when my first novel um the three-day affair sold um he talked to me on the phone and said guess what you're a crime writer I said, okay, <laughs> because I didn't know. That first novel, um, I just wrote to be a novel novel, and my agent sent it out to a number of different presses, and it so happened that he wanted it. Um, so he, he informed me that I was a crime writer, and uh, I thought that was interesting. And um, But honestly, as far as the... Um, the way that um, we work together is he's, he's, he's a real champion of the books. And, and knows the world and seems to know every, every writer and, and have that... Uh kind of connection to all these places. That sounds exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, 
And and I guess, you know, you coming out of kind of the more classic MFA mm-hmm. kind of literary world as in, in terms of your training, mm-hmm. um, and and some of the things I guess that did, maybe didn't come up directly in that session with mm-hmm. with Penzler is is kind of like that um, the divide of the literary versus the genre fiction and how it's kind of being permeated a lot more in these days. Maybe I, yeah, I think it's hugely permeated these days. Um, it's funny when I when I was a kid, um, so my mom was a high school English teacher, and I remember very yeah, she was a very very eclectic reader. And uh, I remember at home once, back to back, there was Best American Short Stories 1987 with these classic, I I, I have the book still, sorry, I know who's in there. It's Tim O'Brien, it's Alice Munro, it's Tobias Wolf, it's all the sort of literary writers you'd expect to be in there. And then I remember reading that, and then I read Nelson DeMille's The Charm School, the spy novel, and they were both around the house because they were both really good, you know? And so um, I feel like that's kind of how I grew up as a, as a reader and certainly as a writer. And so, yeah, my MFA was um, in fiction, but it's not this whole idea of like, you know, literary genre. I feel like in practice, I don't know a lot of people who are that hung up on it these days, um, especially there's so many crossover kind of writers. Um, you, know, you know, I'm certainly some of the writers I really admire and even quote, and, you know, on the literary side, you know, a writer like Kevin Brockmeyer, um, who's doing like, is it speculative? Is it science fiction? Is it literary? I have no idea. It's just really good. It's really well-written stuff. Um, and so I feel like as, as a, as a writer, I just want to sort of chase a good story and see where it leads. And so I get, I don't know if I've ever written a mystery. I don't, I wouldn't call bluff a mystery, but, but I think the fact that the material is cards and magic and con artistry and she so to write that story with with a weak plot sounds kind of silly right and so mm-hmm. um in a way i wanted the the form of the book to be related in an appropriate way to its content so i want the reader to go through almost as if they're watching a magic show i want them to feel comfortable that they're going to come out of it with a sense of wonder they're going to think they're along for a, a satisfying ride mm-hmm how do do your students come in with with those kind of um, divisions in their head in terms of like oh I'm a serious right reader or I'm I only like Stephen King or you know I think if a if a if a student comes in as a serious as like a big fan of, of a reader of anything it's a positive I mean now you have so many readers uh, who come into class having read Harry Potter and being that kind which is great those books are wonderful so I mean that's a wonderful thing or you know I think. For, Probably for me, it was like if people were on the more genre side, it was because they grew up reading a lot of Stephen King. Again, Stephen King's a really good writer. So um, I think a lot of the genre distinctions have more to do with where books get shelved in a bookstore. Or than, marketed. Or marketed, yeah. Yeah. for sure. And it's funny. I was on a panel once with a friend of mine from grad school who, this was after my first novel came out, which was, again, with the Mysterious Press. And my, and my friend's novel came out with a, quote, more with a literary imprint, but his was absolutely this ghost story, this quasi literary ghost story. And it was really funny because we, we were on a panel together and we held our books up. And we're like, which one is the literary one and which one's the genre one? And my font was like huge capital letters and his was like little lowercase, you know, you yeah. could barely read the title. And, and so it, it, I think it does have a lot to do with, with who they're marketing to. Absolutely. We're back for the final segment of the Arts Hour today. Our guest is Michael Cardos. He's the co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Mississippi State, and we're talking about his new book, Bluff. Um, 
Speaking of, uh, so this book is based in New Jersey, like uh, most of your other, are they all based in New Jersey? The or? three novels are, yeah. Okay, imagine that. Uh, <laughs> you're native of New Jersey, as you mentioned, and uh, I was thinking uh, uh, New Jersey's Dylan, uh, Bruce Springsteen, he stepped into the literary world about mm-hmm. a year and a half back, uh, mm-hmm. put out his memoir that came out to a lot of attention. I was mm-hmm. just curious what, and it has a lot of detail about kind of place and, and you know, because that's, a, mm-hmm. I guess, a you know, the main thing about him is mm-hmm. kind of where he's from. I'm yeah. just curious your your thoughts about that book. Yeah, um, my thoughts about the book are that um, it it the book is a perfect representation of a Springsteen concert, which is to say it's very long, it's exuberant, <laughs> and it's full of riffs. So I I thought it was great. I thought it was really great, um, and I I thought his writing was so much like you. It was like the best version of what you'd ex- hope for, knowing that he was coming out with a, with a memoir. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's super into place. Um, he grew up probably about 15 miles from where I grew up. I've, I've seen him twice in my life in person. The second time was he just rode by on a motorcycle. When I, and I was like, oh, there he goes. But the first time was I was 17 years old or 16 years old. And I was out with my family at a restaurant in Seabright, New Jersey. And he and Max Weinberg and their then spouses were at the table, about three tables away. And I really wanted his autograph, and all we had was my the back of my mom's pay stub. So I so I have currently at home, you know, all these years later, the back of my mom's pay stub with both of their signatures. And, and Max drew me a little drum set too. Wow! Yes, very it, was, nice. it was very exciting. Well, that's something you just trade in as a New Jersey, as, as somebody from that area, right? Everybody has their their New Jer- their their Springsteen anecdote. Right? That's right. I mean, I don't think he doesn't really hide, so people run into him. Yeah. Um. He, I mean, he really loves just like the, I mean, like he talks about like the tree out in front of his house where he, <laughs> he lived with his grandparents. I mean, I thought it was really, especially the, the, the youth part of it was really evocative. To yeah. Me. And there's certain, a sort of like mythology that gets associated w- with all that. And, and which I can identify with because like you said, the, my three novels are all set in New Jersey, but I haven't lived in New Jersey now in 18 years. I mean, I've, I've been back there to visit, um, but I haven't lived there, and yet I feel when I'm writing a novel, that's kind of where my, my mind goes. And I think part of it's because maybe when you're writing a novel, you have so many thousands of decisions to make. It's nice to not have to decide the street names and the, and the towns. And, you know, I sort of have still such a good memory for the feel of the, feel of the place. I think in a way, not living there, but living in Mississippi, a lot of the noise fades away. And I'm kind of left with like this um, sort of platonic ideal of what I imagine New Jersey is like. So it, it's not, I don't even know if it's exactly the most realistic version of New Jersey, but it's sort of the one that I imagine in my brain is the realistic version of it. The one I, that you're kind of time, tra- you're traveling back to your home. That's, th- that's right. Your and work. and, and yeah. in a way, even though Springsteen still lives there, um, I, I feel like in a way that's kind of what his songs do. They sort of conjure up this version of New Jersey that's, it's truthful, whether or not it's completely factual is another story. Yeah, he is, and 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 kind of that that power of rock and roll, and mm-hmm. kind of the power of the music and stuff too. That he, mm-hmm. um, it's he's such a cheerleader for the stuff he's doing. Yeah, before I went back to grad school, when I was in my late twenties, I spent a year playing in a Springsteen tribute band, and um, it was amazing. It was the best attended gigs I ever had because. <laughs> It was really, it was really, it was it was pretty pretty neat thing to to do actually. And did you guys play in New Jersey? We played in New Jersey, kind of okay. everywhere between like D.C. and you know up to Boston and Nantucket and up up to Massachusetts. Yeah. And w- were you ever kind of like uh, 
like the detail Springsteen fan saying, well, you know, that Max really wouldn't use that kind of drum set or, well, you another know. Drum, we were pretty precise about it. I okay. mean, that was one thing is that, you know, the, some of those fans are just there to have a good time and some of them were there to make sure you hit the right drum fills or the right exactly. guitar riffs and yeah. things like that. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> so what are your, uh, so talk a little bit about your, your teaching. Are you, are you teaching graduate students and undergrad? What's, what's the mix there? Yeah, I teach undergraduates and I teach um, grad students, uh, mainly creative writing classes. So uh, at the intro level, fiction and poetry. And then as they get more advanced, I, you know, I teach, I teach fiction and occasionally I teach an American lit class. Uh, last year I taught a, a literature and film class based on the con artist. So that was pretty fun. It was one of those moments where my, where my writing world and my teaching world collided in a pretty fun way. So I got to show all my undergrads like the sting at the beginning of semester, and and uh, that was that was a pretty neat class. Were you still writing this at that time? I or? was finishing it up. I mean, okay. I was kind of doing the final revisions on it. So it was kind of like all that you've learned, kind of just dumping it in, in it, some ways. It was. I mean, we, we talked about you know like movie adaptations, and we read sort of theoretical articles about adaptation. But our source material were, were the con artist movies and books. Yeah. So what are the, the undergrad or graduate students who are the, you know, really want, want to be writers or whatever? What are they reading? I mean, I'm thinking back when my uh, college years, people were still reading The Beats. They were reading Tom Wolfe, you know, mm-hmm. like who are the who are the who are the writers that are really influencing these your kids? Overall? Oh, my gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, some I, I do try to like encourage what they're already interested in because they came to my class for a reason, you know, because they like certain kinds of works. I'm also always trying to play matchmaker with them. So if they, if they are writing a story that reminds me of a certain kind of writer, I'll try to, you know, marry them to them and and get and increase their familiarity. And then I always have certain stories that I just love teaching because they're fun, you know? Um, But it's hard, you know, like in an intro class that we, we may only read a dozen stories while they're also working on their own. And so this it's, there's only so many you can do. So I feel like I'm always like, be like, oh, when you when you when you leave my class, read this book and this book and this book over the summer, you know. And and, I, and my job as a teacher, I feel, is to always imagine that they actually do that, you know, <laughs> yeah. because because who knows who you know, if some of them do, that's wonderful, and then they may right. go on, and I may never know it. Right. But. Are they, you know, much is made of Mississippi as you know this ultimate kind of place like no other? Are 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 they, is their writing kind of do they base their stuff here? Or are they all in Mars or no, Futurama? I, th- I think a lot of them do base their writing um, in Mississippi. Part of it is that they need. Per- I feel like they feel as if they need permission to. I mean, this is true. This was not only true here. This is true when I was in graduate school in Missouri and in Ohio. I feel like a lot of, especially undergrads, don't feel like they have a right to write about the things that they've experienced. Um, I don't mean plot, but I mean like location. Like they grew up in a really small town in Mississippi and feel like that's not newsworthy and they have to not interesting yeah not interesting and and i think they have to be convinced that no that's really interesting as long as you get the details right you know because um what you do day to day and that that town and that you know they grew up on a farm what's that like what does it feel like where are your neighbors and what are you doing and and they don't realize how much they know just by being having been alive for 18 19 20 years um that they can put to use in their fiction and actually one thing i always have my undergrads do early on is to just write down an activity that they're really good at you know whether it's uh you know being a lifeguard or serving drinks in a bar or whatever um not that their story has to be about that but boy, put that into a story, have a character in the background doing those kinds of things, and suddenly have they have all this authority on the page. And the example I love to give is, okay, you can have a couple breakup. I mean, so many breakup stories exist. So you're going to write a breakup story. Please don't set it in a cafe. Set it somewhere 
more interesting that you know about? So I had a student who was who worked in a veterinarian's office, and like, how much more interesting if you're breaking up with your boyfriend while giving a horse an injection, right? I mean, as opposed to like drinking your latte. And I think so. Um, it, a lot of times, it's just sort of convincing them that they have things to write about. Just giving them the confidence, I mm-hmm. guess, as well. For sure. We're talking with Michael Cardos today. He's a co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Mississippi State, and he's got a brand new book out called Bluff, his third novel. Um, I was thinking about um, maybe you could talk a little bit about – I saw on your your Twitter feed, of course, that's a, <laughs> a, a research point for all artists, uh, is that you know you have a drink named after you at the, uh, at the coffee shop in Starkville. So maybe talk a little bit about the uh, – the writing life and and how community kind of yeah, connects into that. Absolutely. I mean part of it has to do with the fact that once one has children, one can no longer work at home very well. Okay. So um, <laughs> I've gotten better at working in various places, even if it's a little noisy. And so I do. Uh, I work at the coffee shop um, a frequent amount. It's just somewhere a little different and somewhere I can kind of plug in and disappear for a while. And so yeah, it was kind of a joke. The coffee drink was it was it they I was there so often ordering this thing that was like um, it was a two-shot Americano, but in a, in, a, in a larger cup because normally they put three shots in there and I would get a headache. So I asked their two shots and some extra water, and they thought that was kind of funny because I would do that all the time. So they, they called it the mic, and so we described it as something like, um, you know, the mic is like nice and a little weak, kind of like mic. <laughs> <laughs> so they're lining up for the mic there, aren't they? <laughs> At least the mic is lining up for the mic. Well, so it, a lot of it, I guess, is just trying to kind of. You obviously are are disciplined because you 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 were here three years ago, and mm-hmm. now you're back with another book. And it took and, a lot of discipline to come down here. <laughs> well, we're taking you out of your your day to day, right? You've got to. You're right. I mean, are you a, a seven day a week person on writing? Um, in my ideal world, sure. But in my real world, you know, there's days when I teach. There's days when the kids are doing things. There's, you know, so, I, I, you know, during the summer, I'm a little bit more regular about it. And during the semester, it tends to be days when I'm not teaching or um, days when I am teaching if I'm not teaching until later in the day. So um, it is I, I do like getting my hand on the manuscript every day in some way if I can because it just seems easier to go back to it than if I take you know if I take up several days off I find going back is much harder to get back into the swing of things mm-hmm. um, but I, I, also, I also think like the, the longer I've been doing it the less panicked I am if I have to take a little time away you know Bluff just came out I do have another some other writing that I'm working on right now but sort of doing things for this book you know giving readings and everything I, like I'm enjoying knowing that it's going to be okay. I'll be able to go back to my new material, and I, I've been doing it long enough where I don't think it's going to be gone. I'll be able to get back to it. And talking of, about kind of the book coming out, it's you know promotions is such an important part now, and it, and I, I assume it's you know of a of a book rollout, and just mm-hmm. give give the listeners just a sense of kind of what you're kind of obligated to in terms of you know getting the word out now about your own book. Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, one thing that's nice about it is writing is so solitary that it's really nice to be able to, when it's done, to be able to go out into the world and meet people who are reading it. I mean, it's like it's a wonderful thing. Um, I think at the same time, no one knows really what sells books, you know, because everybody will say, oh, I, I bought the last book or I read the last book because my friend said it was great. But that's really hard to quantify. So um, consequently, you know, what does one do? One gives readings, you know, which is which is which is great to do. Um, you know, I also will sometimes like do some guest blogging at book blog websites and things like that. Um, 
and um, essentially whatever my publisher asks me to do, you know. Um, but it but it is kind of nice to be able to you know emerge from the coffee shop and put my headphones down and and you know sort of talk about and not only talk about what I've done but also try to figure out what I've done because it's one thing like we've been sort of speaking hopefully somewhat um, articulately about about this book, but. But the truth is, a lot of it is intuitive, and a lot of it is the decisions I made weren't decisions at all. They were things that felt right. Because, you know, literature is a weird thing. On the one hand, um, it's it's scholarly, and it's like you're putting together thoughts. On the other hand, it's a fine art. It's like clay, and it's like you know painting, and it's like so. It, which it, it involves. It just our medium happens to be words, and happens to be language. But a lot of it is intuitive, and a lot of getting experience is, you know, you learn the craft, you learn the craft, you learn the craft so that then you could forget the craft and do what sort of feels right. But then when you're done, you're forced to go back and figure out what you've done, right? Because people are like, well, what'd you do? And you have to find the words to explain it. And so that's kind of interesting for me. It's almost like I'm trying to understand what it is that I did. Do How much do you, or do you map out kind of plot wise your books? Yeah. Um, I, I know writers who plan everything. And I know writers who write the first sentence and then polish it and then write the second sentence and polish it and just forge ahead. And um, we call those, you know, the planners versus the pantsers going by the seat of your pants, right? And and I'm somewhere in the middle where I think for a short story, I am very content to wing it because the worst that happens is it blows up in my face and I put it away and it's, it's okay. But um, I think for a novel, if I'm going to spend three years working on it, I really want to minimize the chance it blows up in my face at the end of three years. So I want to have enough understanding of the basic structure that maybe the three or four or five main pivots in the novel, but I don't want to know everything because I think if I don't discover something myself, there won't be any sense of discovery or surprise for the reader. So um, I'm not planning out every plot move or every chapter or anything, but I am trying to put together maybe a sort of picture for myself of the basic bones of the story and where the major moves are going to be. I'm curious, what's, is there an example you could give from this book of, of kind of like a detail that, that you didn't plan and it just kind of arrived? Oh gosh, like almost all of them, truly. I mean, you know, um, yeah, I'm trying to think uh, a lot. I, I think some of my scenes begin just with characters talking. If I know it's going to be a talky scene, right? There's there's talky scenes, there's there's transitions, and there's summarized action. But for like my second chapter involves the magician Natalie talking to this kind of blustery lawyer Brock, and a lot of their dialogue. Um, I just just I was like I knew they had to talk, and I knew the goal of that scene was he has to offer to represent to to represent her to be her lawyer, and also to suggest to to mention that he knows a professional card sheet. Like that's what had to come out of that scene, but how they get there um, was all just kind of playing, you know, on on uh, you know typing out what what he sounds like, what she sounds like, you know, and and some jokes that were too jokey, and I got rid of them, and because it's kind of a kind of a comic scene, uh, so I think the minute by minute like things that happen in the novel, I plan very few of those ahead. Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you so much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, Michael Cardos, your new book is Bluff. It's uh, 
finer bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Even uh, some of the non-finer ones, but go to the finer ones. The finer ones yeah. first, and then if it's not there, <laughs> I'm sure it will be there. Uh, MichaelCardos.com, I assume, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so thanks again for everyone for uh, tuning in. Uh, if you'd like to listen back to the, if you missed part of the show, and listen back, or you want to share the show, you can go to mpbonline.org, and they, pa- they post all our past shows as streaming files. And you can also go onto iTunes or however you get podcasts and download the show as a podcast as well. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.